Alright, we are continuing today our study through the Gospel of Mark. And if you would like to turn to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 2, then we will, uh, we will move, move forward uh, with our study. Gospel of Mark in chapter 2. Several years ago, I was uh, riding in a vehicle with a fellow who was a very religious person. He was a hard-working, responsible fellow, very nice, and of course he knew I was a pastor, so we began talking about the way to heaven. I sort of knew his background, but I was not sure of his relationship with the Lord Jesus, and as we talked, he mentioned the grace of God. I quoted to him Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. And after I quoted that to him, he he wholeheartedly agreed, and he said, Oh yes, the only way we will ever reach heaven is by the grace of God. We believe that. Knowing uh, what I knew of his religious background, I was kind of puzzled, because I never got the impression that anyone in his church was actually trusting the grace of God. And so I said, uh, So you believe that the only way we will ever reach heaven is by the grace of God? Absolutely, he said, that's the only way. Well, I was really puzzled now, been feeling very strongly that we were not really on the same theological page, and I figured I must be asking the wrong question or asking it the wrong way. And so the Lord put in my mind to ask him this. I said, I'm so glad to hear that you're trusting, actually trusting the grace of God to get you to heaven, but let me ask you, How do you access the grace of God? How does the grace of God come to you? How do you you get God's grace? And he said, without a moment's hesitation, he said, well, we all have sin and nobody's perfect, but you should try as hard as you can to be good and do the right thing, and when you die, God will see how hard you tried, and he will extend his grace to you to get you the rest of the way into heaven. Well, I silently thanked the Lord for putting that question into my mind because I thought, okay, now I see where he's coming from. So I said to him, well, think about that for a moment. I said, if God is looking at you to see how hard you're trying, and he's going to base the giving of his grace to you based on how hard you tried, then it really isn't grace. That's works. God is extending His grace to you because you worked hard to be good and do the right thing. If God's grace depends on your efforts, then it isn't grace, it's works. He said, you know, you got a point. Never really thought about that. I said, what's what's more, I said, how could you ever have any confidence that you were actually forgiven? You'd go through your entire life wondering if you had done enough. And wondering if God was really thinking that you'd done enough. And you would come to your dying breath never really knowing if you were going to make it or not. He said, well, none of us, meaning the people in his church, he said, none of us ever really have the assurance of our salvation. We just kind of hope we'll make it. And I thought, wouldn't, wouldn't that be terrible? wanting to go to heaven, but never really knowing for sure if you were going. 
always wondering if you were measuring up and, and, and not even knowing what the standard is that you're trying to measure up to. I mean, how good is good enough? Carol asked a fellow that one time when he was trying, he was saying he was trying to be good so he could go to heaven. Carol said to him, okay, well, how good is good? It, he, he had no answer. He said, I asked my mother that. She didn't know either. And, and, and of course, most of you know the answer to that question. You, you can't possibly ever be good enough. Well, we are incapable of meeting God's standard of perfection. That's why Jesus came. So, so if we are hung up on trying to achieve some standard of goodness that will make us acceptable to God, then we're toast. It's over for us. We are eternally doomed. You see, we have access to the grace of God because of our faith, our confident belief in the work of Jesus Christ, in what Jesus Christ did. Before we read our brief story here in Mark chapter 2 today, let me take you through just a real brief journey through the book of Romans. We'll be right here in Mark chapter 2 in just a moment. But let's look at Romans chapter 3, if we could, please. Romans chapter 3. God did not leave us wondering when it comes to how to get His grace. Romans chapter 3, many of you are familiar with verse 23, but let's begin to read there in verse 23, and we'll read just a few verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Classic statement, classic theological statement, we're all sinners, nobody can live a perfect life, we all fall short of the glory of God. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, being justified, that is, our slate's been clean, we've been declared, been declared innocent, justified freely by His grace, by God's grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, and don't lose your don't lose your track of thought there when you see the big word propitiation. It just means satisfaction. It means when God looked at Jesus Christ, He was satisfied with what Jesus Christ did. So He said, "We've been justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as to be the satisfaction for our sin." By His blood, there it is again, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. And this is an interesting phrase, it's a big theological point, he might be, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Remember I told you last week, I don't know if you remember or not what I told you last week. Remember how it's so amazing that God in His righteousness, God in His holiness, God in His purity, God absolutely has to judge sin. He cannot just ignore sin and pretend like it didn't exist. He has to be just. He has to, he has to bring about justice. But yet, He provided the way for us to be rescued from His own wrath. It, it's really an amazing thing about the compassion and the mercy of God, that God has to judge sin, but He provided a way for us to escape His judgment. That's what He means here, that God can be just 
He can, he can judge sin, and He can be the justifier, the one who makes us clean, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then, verse 27? It's excluded. By law? By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28. Key verse, if you've never underlined it. There it is for you. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. You cannot ever be good enough to get to heaven. That's why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. So God can be just. He can judge sin. And He did it in Jesus on the cross. And He can be the justifier, the one who forgives. Therefore we conclude a man is justified, he says, by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. Look at chapter 5, just maybe right across your page. Chapter 5 of Romans. Maybe turn one page. Look at just the first two verses there. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So when I ask my friend, how do you access God's grace? How do you get God's grace? The Apostle Paul doesn't say you try as hard as you can try and hopefully after you die, God will see how hard you tried and He'll give you His grace. No, he says in verse 2, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. How do we access the grace of God? We trust what Jesus did on the cross. That's how we get the grace of God. Because we can't ever possibly live up, live up to God's righteous standard. And there in chapter 5 again, look at verse 6. For we were, when we were still without strength or without ability, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good well, man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow, what a beautiful thought. We were still sinners. Christ died for us. So that by we can be justified, we can be forgiven. That's what justified means. Being God looks at this big list of sins that I have committed, and, and He takes a, big, a giant eraser, and He goes, whoosh, and He wipes them all out. Oh, I don't see that you did anything wrong, Larry, which is ridiculous, of course. I don't see you did anything wrong, Larry. You are pure because I see you in Jesus Christ. You've been justified. You've been, you've been, you've been, your, your whole slate of sins has been wiped clean. How do we get that? Through faith in what Jesus did on our behalf. And we could go on and on and on and on through Romans and many other passages. The glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God gives salvation to people who can earn it, or that He gives salvation to people who achieve it, or to people who are good enough, or righteous enough, or holy enough, because no one is. But He gives salvation to the ungodly and the unholy and the unrighteous who trust in Christ and repent. This is the grace of God. And it stands against every works righteousness system in existence. It is the difference between the true gospel of Jesus Christ and all other religions. We spoke last week of the uniqueness of forgiveness. And this week, I tell you that forgiveness comes to us through our trust in the grace of God through Christ. 
There are large numbers of churches who profess to be Christian, quote-unquote. That is, they're following the teachings of Jesus Christ, and yet they have developed this system of works that is supposedly mixed with grace. We've seen in our little brief overview of these, just these few passages in Romans that, that this is absolutely impossible. You cannot mix faith and works. It's either works or it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's either we're saved by the grace of God through our faith in what Jesus did, or we work to get it. You can't blend them together. They don't. They, they can't possibly work. If you work for it, it can't be grace. If you, God gives you grace, you can't work for it. And yet, and yet many, many people under the Christian label today, many, many denominational groups, many church groups under the Christian label today have developed this, this system that that is exactly what my friend was saying to me, that I try as hard as hard as I can to be good and do right, and when I die, God sees how hard I tried, and then He gives me His grace. Can't possibly happen scripturally. It's either grace or it's works. It's one or the other. And we've seen here in our passages here in the book of Romans that it's, it's grace. We are saved by faith, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without any mixture of works or good deeds. Works come after true salvation to honor Jesus Christ for what he did for us. There is no way we can earn or deserve what Jesus did on our behalf. Now back in Mark chapter 2, we're going to see today a story of grace. Last week we saw a story of forgiveness. This week a story of grace. Want to read it together? It's short. Reading is quite brief. But the understanding of it really is, is quite deep. Mark chapter 2, we're going to begin to read in verse 13. We're just going to go to verse 17. Just a short little passage. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The point of this story is summed up in that final statement at the end of verse 17. I didn't come to call the righteous, Jesus says, but sinners to repentance. You see, the only people who can enter heaven, the only people who will be received by God, the only people who can be received into his glorious kingdom, the only people who are given salvation, are not the people who think they can earn it, but the people who know they can't. Jesus Christ forgives sinners who repent. That's the message of the gospel. He came to seek and to save those who are lost, Luke chapter 19 tells us. That's the message of the gospel. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this identical story because it gives us the essence of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember last week, the first 12 verses of the chapter, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed, but first he forgave his sin. 
That threw the Jewish leaders into this rage because they understood that only God can forgive sin. Therefore, Jesus was claiming to be God. But Jesus continued to prove who he was by, 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 by healing the quadriplegic man who did, remember, nothing except exhibit faith in Jesus. So we see first Jesus' authority and his ability to forgive sin. Then we see whose sin he's going to forgive. Those who recognize that they're sinners. He didn't come to call people who think they're righteous. He came to call sinners. So the essence of trusting Christ is recognizing, first of all, that you are a sinner. That you are incapable of, of reaching God by your own works. And I've got to tell you, that is a very hard sell to people who are brainwashed by, by works-based religion. It is a very hard sell to people who are self-righteous. It is a very hard sell to people who have been told all of their lives that they are good. That's why every time Jesus preaches like this, somebody wants to kill him. The first sermon that he preached in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, they tried to throw him off a cliff. They weren't about to acknowledge themselves as sinners. Faithful attendees in the synagogue weren't sinners. They were holy in their own minds. They had bought into the Pharisees' religion of, of, of works and righteousness that is achieved by human effort. But the Bible way is not for people who think they're good enough for God. It's for people who know they're not. Salvation is not for people who think they're righteous. It is for people who know they're not righteous. It is for people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, not the people who think they've already achieved it. So our Savior's ministry, his whole ministry, was focused on people who knew they were sinners, who admitted they were sinners, who desired forgiveness and turned to Christ, the only one who has the right to forgive. And that kind of grace, that kind of friendship with sinners that Jesus demonstrated, that was an absolute outrage to the scribes and Pharisees. It was a threat to their system of self-righteousness. So they hated Jesus. And we'll see in a few weeks as we move through the Gospel of Mark that already in the very first year of Jesus' ministry, in the first months of Jesus' ministry, uh, they were already formulating a way to get rid of him before he became so popular with the people that he brings down the, 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 the collapse of their whole system on their heads. But things get really interesting here. Right after the healing of the paralytic, Jesus goes down by the seashore, down by the Sea of Galilee, he does the teaching immediately. He heads back to Capernaum. And as he's heading back into Capernaum, he walks by this tax booth. It says here, he sees the son of Levi, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. They say, what is this? Uh, I mean, and, and, but Jesus does, Jesus does this unthinkable thing. You see, if, if by chance some tax collector tried to follow a rabbi, the rabbi would do everything he could possibly do to get rid of him. No self-respecting rabbi would want to call a tax collector to be part of his following. No self-respecting person would want a tax collector as a friend. Tax collectors hung out with other tax collectors because nobody else would have anything else to do with them. Jesus was very different. See, Jesus, Jesus shattered all the stereotypes. And as he goes back toward Capernaum, he passes this toll station, this tax office. Remember Capernaum, we talked about a few weeks ago, was at a, a crossroads of business travel in Galilee. 
in Rome, the, 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 uh, the government of Rome would offer a tax franchise that would be sold to the highest bidder. So you had to have some money to buy one, and once you got one, it was a way to make a fortune. With the name Levi, you knew this guy was Jewish, which means he had sold out to the Romans in order to make money. The Romans were hated by the Jews, of course. They were military occupiers. They were oppressive. They were despised. And so you see a Jewish person who has become a tax collector. They were the lowest low-life outcast you could possibly imagine. See, because all the Romans would say was this. When people pass by this tax booth, you have, they have to pay a duty to Rome, and you charge them this certain amount of money, and then whatever you think you can get out of them, you can, you can charge them whatever you want and get the rest. That's, that's what they did. There was nothing in paper that this amount of poundage of this certain thing cost this much. It's just like, you know, if you pass through here and you've got a caravan and you've got six camels and they're loaded with all this stuff, you've got to pay one, two, three, four, five, you've got six camels, you've got, seven, you've got two packs on each. Okay, that's, that's 12 packs of, of whatever you're carrying. And that would be, a, I say that's going to be, you know, uh, you know $97.37. Actually, it was only $35.37, but I'm just, I'm just charging a little extra and I'm going to put it in my pocket. All the tax collectors did that. The Jewish people all knew it, and they absolutely despised them. And you know, we know from the parallel story in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, and the parallel story in, in, uh, in, in also in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, that this person who is called Levi here in this passage, it is Matthew. The Matthew that we know as an apostle. The Matthew that we know as the writer of the gospel that bears his name. Mark and Luke call him Levi. Matthew uses his name as an apostle to identify his past. And I believe he is owning his own history as a tax collector. So you say, how does his name get changed from Levi to Matthew? Well, we don't know. We don't have any record of that in the scripture. Maybe he just decided to change his name. I mean, if you'd been a tax collector, it would be good for you to try to alter your identity. And if he did choose his own name... Matthew, he chose very well. It means the gift of Yah, the gift of Yahweh. So Jesus looks at him. He sees Matthew. He sees Levi sitting at the tax office. And he says to him, follow me. Matthew leaves his tax office. He follows Jesus. Remember, this is in the region of Capernaum. Jesus has been preaching and performing miracles there for months. Undoubtedly, Matthew knows who Jesus is. He's probably heard him preach. He knows about the healings. He knows about the quadriplegic. He knows about the leper. He, how could he possibly not know who this young rabbi was? Jesus was the talk of the town. He was the talk of Galilee. Everybody knew who Jesus was and what he was doing. So when he walks by the tax office, he just, he just looks at Levi and says, follow me. Levi knows what Jesus is asking. Leave your old life behind and become one of my disciples. Gospel of Mark says he arose and he followed him. Gospel of Luke, he adds one extra little phrase. He says he left all and followed him. He left everything. John chapter 2 verse 24, speaking of Jesus, says nobody needed to tell Jesus what was in the heart of a man because he knew what was in the heart of a man. Jesus is the omniscient Son of God. He knows everything. We saw last week in our study that he read the minds of the scribes who were condemning him. So Jesus knew what Levi had been thinking, and Levi knew what Jesus was asking. 
And so when Luke adds he left all, he means exactly that. There was no return. This is a dramatic life change for Matthew. Without any explanation, he abandons everything, which, which for him had been his whole business of making money. He was a man of the world. He was a man who didn't care about his place in society. He didn't care about friendships. He didn't care about honor. He didn't care about respect. All he cared about was money. That's why he became a tax collector. That's why he sold out to the Romans to do it. Reading my preparation for this message this week, I came across one historian that says the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are Jewish writings by rabbis, they kind of, they kind of lump tax collectors together with thieves and murderers. Tax collectors were banned from testifying in Jewish courts because they were all considered to be liars. They were banned from attending meetings in a synagogue. They were considered to be traitors to their people. They were like they were kind of like we think of it as as a as a Jewish mafia. They they were criminals who worked for the Romans and ripped people off for their own financial gain. And Jesus walks by the tax booth, looks at him, knowing his heart, and he says, "Follow me." Whatever God had been doing in Levi's heart and Matthew's heart, whatever he'd seen and heard about Jesus, he'd come to recognize his sin, not just the stigma of his job or his career, not just the corruption of his ways as a tax collector, but his sin before God. And all Jesus has to say is, follow me. And he got out of that tax office and he left his entire old life behind. And in that moment... Everything that had controlled his life up to that moment had lost meaning to him. The money had no meaning. The power, the world had lost its grip. The old ways lost their charm. Under conviction of sin, all Matthew wanted was forgiveness. And he knew that Jesus was the one who could provide it. Because now, all of a sudden, he has a new heart and a new mind and new desires, and he never looked back. So Levi, Matthew, the traitor, the outcast, the the greedy, money-hungry sinner, he becomes a disciple and an apostle and a writer of the history of Jesus and the Gospels. Early church stories indicate that Matthew died a martyr years later in Ethiopia, preaching the Gospel. He had lost a career, but he had gained eternity. He had lost all of his material possessions, but he gained heaven. He had lost all of his earthly financial security, but he gained a heavenly inheritance. He knew what the Jewish leaders were rejecting. He knew that it was for men and women like him Jesus had come to bring salvation. But the story gets even better. Matthew is so blessed and so thankful that Jesus has called him to be his disciple He says in these next verses, he throws a big feast for Jesus at his house. And he invites all of his tax collector friends. So, 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 here's Jesus and his disciples. Remember, so far we got James, John, Peter, and Andrew, and now Matthew. Here's Jesus and all his disciples in a house full of outcasts. And they're all following him, Mark says. And look at verse 15. It happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Matthew is basically creating this mini-revival among the tax collectors. All, 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 these, all these outcasts, all these people that everybody hates, 
All these people that nobody will talk to. They have nobody to hang out with except each other. And Matthew says, hey, come to my house. I want, I want, I want you to meet a guy. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ there having this, this big feast in, 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 in Matthew's house. And all these tax collectors are all around and other sinners, whoever they might have, whoever the Pharisees thought they might have been. And the scribes and the Pharisees are going absolutely ballistic. What in the world is this rabbi doing? He is eating with riffraff. He is defiling himself. He is actually eating food that's been touched by tax collectors. He is hanging out with lying, cheating, traitorous scoundrels. How in the world can he be of God if he is friends with these people? This is scandalous. Where are the tabloid reporters when you need them? This information has got to get to the religious authorities. We've all seen it. We have witnessed this scandalous display of ungodliness. He openly has dinner with sinners. How disgusting. You know, unfortunately, many professing followers of Jesus have too much in common with the scribes and the Pharisees. We're real good at identifying sin and sinners, but we're not real good at always extending grace to them and trying to bring them into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. But in response to this, this outrage by the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus utters those beautiful words of grace. Excuse me. <clears throat> Those who are healthy don't need a doctor, he says, but those who are sick do. I didn't come to call the people who think they're religious. I came to call sinners to repentance. Some of you remember the old hymn that I, I, that I grew up singing called Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Wonderful Grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled by its transforming power, making him God's dear child, purchasing peace and heaven for all eternity, and the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches even me. Wonderful, the chorus goes, wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than a mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise His name. The Pharisees were so far from God they could identify people as sinners, but instead of wanting to bring them to the grace of God, they had no mercy on them. And when Jesus did show them mercy, they raged with hate as Jesus welcomed forgiven and believing sinners into his kingdom. With Jesus, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5.20, he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so it is today. The church of Jesus Christ is not made up of good people. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of forgiven sinners. It's not made up of people who think they're righteous. It's made up of people who know they're not. It's not made up of people who have achieved some supposed level of righteousness on their own. It's made up of people who have received righteousness from God through the gift of forgiveness. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, but
But the only sin he can forgive is the sin of those who recognize it and acknowledge it and put their trust in him. If you have struggled with feelings like the Pharisees, try to remember everything God has forgiven you of. And if you are not absolutely certain that you are forgiven, may I encourage you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, but the only sin he can forgive is the sin of those who recognize it and acknowledge it and put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful story of grace. You reached out to this outcast, despised tax collector, called him to be your disciple. Not only did he leave that life behind, Lord, he became one of the writers of the New Testament. What a beautiful picture of grace. Lord, as we look around us and we see the failures and the struggles of, of people, it's, it's, it's real easy for us to see other people's sin. May we, Lord, see our sin just as clearly. And may we reach out to those who are struggling with sin. And may we try to draw them into the grace of God. What a beautiful thing it is for the grace of God to reach out to us. Help us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.